morning. So I was having a conversation with Nathan Panabecker in the foyer today, and we were talking about good mornings and how are yous, and the way that we respond to a, hey, how are you doing? And we've got all these things that we say, like, I'm good, or great, or better than I deserve, or living the dream, right? Like, we, we all, living the dream is my personal favorite. That's the one I say. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, sometimes that dream is a nightmare, <laughs> right? Sometimes we go through hard things. Sometimes weeks are hard. Sometimes months are hard. Sometimes years are hard. Now, I like to say living the dream or things are good because it's my nature to want to focus on the positive, to remember the good things and not dwell on the things that are keeping me down. That is my nature. That is the way my brain works. But guys, some weeks are hard. I had a bad week. I'm sure there are others who are here who have had bad weeks and bad months. The question is, what do we believe when we're having a hard time? Where is our hope when hope seems lost? What message do we preach to ourselves when we find ourselves in a particularly bad spot. Today, I'm going to preach a one-point sermon. But don't you think that because it's only one point, it's going to be super short. We're going to stretch that baby out. Because you guys know how I am. I heard an amen back there. That's right. You preach. Here, Here is that one point. Are you ready? You can write it down. The Lord rejoices in your salvation. The Lord rejoices in your salvation. That's it. That's the point. Now we're going to talk about it for the next 30 minutes, if you're lucky. Let's look back at verse 21 of our passage that Laura read for us just a second ago. Luke 10, verse 21. Says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what I want to do today is just look at this one verse and break it down into its little pieces for you. So, uh, Preston, did I put that other slide up with the, the highlighted words? I want to uh, draw your attention to a couple of things. Okay, I want you to see here the words that Luke puts on paper for us. It says, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced. Right? So we see that word rejoiced. And then he continues on, and Jesus speaks and says, I thank you, Father. So we see here this idea of Jesus rejoicing and giving thanks. Thanks. All right, the passage goes on. Father, 
uh, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, and we see hidden here, uh, matched with another word, hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the children, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, what I want you to see here is the tone of this passage. What is the tone of what we read earlier? And I think that we begin to see that tone as we look at those words that are uh, on the slide in red. Rejoiced, thank you, and gracious will. Jesus is rejoicing, giving thanks to the Lord. And what is he rejoicing in? Well, generally speaking, he's rejoicing and giving thanks that God has accomplished his gracious will. Now, what I think is interesting, you guys know I'm partial to the ESV. We use the ESV every week. The, the glory and wonder of translations are that all translations are in and of themselves interpretations. So what I want you guys to do, we're going to unpack this idea of gracious will for a quick second. And to, to do this, I want to look at a couple other versions of our, of our verse. The, the NIV, instead of saying, uh, for such was your gracious will, says, for this is what you were pleased to do. The King James says, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And the New American Standard says, for doing so was well-pleasing in your sight. What I think these other translations help us see is that Jesus in this passage is emphasizing how God feels, okay, how God feels about what has happened. Sure, sure, what he did is important, and we're going to see what he did in just a second, but we need to see that God is pleased, he's pleased in what has happened. And Jesus is rejoicing. He's giving thanks because God is pleased. Okay? So do we see the tone that's going on here? This is a joyful and happy thing that is going on. So as we move through the rest of the passage, we cannot lose the tone that Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and that the Father is pleased because of what has happened. Now, guys, I try really hard and often fail, okay? But I try really hard to not get too nerdy as we move through passages of the Scriptures, okay? So if you will indulge me and track with me for just two or three minutes more, it is my hope that some of this Bible nerd stuff will help us uh, how to learn and read Scripture better on our own so that we can properly interpret our passage today. So we're going to continue this little Bible nerdiness for just a minute. So, all right. Every good Bible nerd knows that context is key to good interpretation. Context is key to good interpretation. So, as we're thinking through Jesus rejoicing and being thankful and God being pleased, the next logical question we have to ask ourselves is, what, what, and what? Like, what did they do? What's been done? What has happened? What was done? Our passage tells us two things have happened. And those were the other words that were highlighted. Okay? That you, the Father, have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. We have this idea here of, of things being hidden 
and revealed. And Jesus is rejoicing. Now, is he rejoicing in the fact that things are hidden from the wise? Or is he rejoicing in the fact that things were revealed to his disciples? Oh, and by the way, what are these things? Okay. Now, here's what I think. We, we don't need to go far to find the answers to these questions within the context of our passage. If we just jump up a couple verses to verses 18 through 20 uh, into part of what Jim taught us last week, we begin to see this all begin to make sense. So let's look at verse 18 through 20 of Luke 10. It says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, now you'll remember last week how Jesus sent out the seven, 72 of his disciples. So you've got the 12, then you've got the bigger group, right? He sent out 72 of his disciples on a mission to share the kingdom of God. They returned from their mission in verse 17, and they said, even demons are subject to the name of Jesus. Like, this is pretty awesome stuff that's going on. I mean, this is pretty incredible, right? They were pumped, and they were moved at the power of the name of Jesus and the authority that they were able to display while they were out on their mission. Now, what we see here is that verse 20 re, uh, serves as kind of a recalibration for the disciples. They were excited about the power. Good. All right, Jesus even confirms the power. So he's not saying, y'all are mistaken, you know. No, no, he confirms it. But verse 20 reminds us that this is the wrong thing to be excited about. It would be really cool to display this kind of power. I would love to see it. It would even be cooler to get to be used by the Lord to do some of this. Come on, a little amen. Somebody's got to be out there thinking, yeah, that'd be really cool, amen. All right, good. Thank you for not lying. I appreciate that. I know I'm not alone, okay? Don't be excited about the power. Instead, be excited that your name is written in heaven. That is where your excitement should be. That is a truly good thing. Would it be awesome to be able to walk around and say, demon, get out, and be healed, you know, and all this stuff, you know? That would be awesome. But what he is saying is, what he's saying is, what's really most important, the thing you need to be most excited about is the fact that your name is written in heaven. So let's go ahead and jump back into our passage again. Let's look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see, this is, this is not a brand new idea. This is a continuation of what we just saw in the previous section. It even says uh, in the same hour as a little clue that should tell us, all right, we're continuing the same idea. Our focus should be on rejoicing. 
All right? Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And then what do we see? Jesus is sharing in that rejoicing. Jesus is sharing in that rejoicing. I want to make this clear and explicit. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as somebody who has placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, Jesus rejoices that you are saved. Do not miss that. If you are following Christ, Jesus rejoices that you are saved. Later in Luke, in chapter 15, Jesus tells a short parable that talks about the joy that comes from people being saved. This comes from Luke 15, starting in verse 8. Just a short little parable. Jesus says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Even the angels rejoice when we believe. This is an amazing thing. The pattern in Scripture is that our salvation is a thing of joy, a thing of beauty, and a thing of celebration. So rejoice that the Lord has revealed these things. But it says something else there, doesn't it? It says that it's hidden from the wise and knowing. Is Jesus rejoicing that, some pe- that it's hidden from some people? I'm glad you asked. Let's go. Let's see. All right, what does it mean? Is Jesus telling us that God is happy that some do not believe? I think 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 helps us. Okay, chapter C, uh, chap- 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think 2 Peter helps us know that, that that's not really what Jesus is rejoicing in. He's not really rejoicing in the fact that it's been hidden from some. The fact of the matter is, let's just think about those whom it's hidden from. What does it say in our passage that they are uh, uh, wise and understanding? If you think about somebody who's wise and understanding, who, who are these people? These are people who trust themselves. These are people who have it all figured out. These are people who know. And have you ever tried to convince somebody who knows of anything? Man, that's an exercise in futility. Because they already know. They're not interested in anything else. They know. They have their blinders on already. So it's hidden from those who are already blind. They can't see. They can't see. So... For, for those who do believe, we're looking, we're seeking, and we're finding because Jesus has taken off our blinders and has helped us to see. So I don't think it's fair to say that Jesus was rejoicing in what was hidden. Instead, let's look back up to Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, and I think you'll begin to see a little more about what's going on with these hidden things. 
Let's look at uh, chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 10, verse 13 and following. It says, Whoa, this is Jesus talking. Again, this is just the same passage we, Jim worked through last week. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more, bear, more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, this passage mentions three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, Jesus spent a lot of time in these three communities. He did many miracles, and he did lots of teaching in these three communities. In fact, several of the 12 disciples were called from this region. Okay? Yet how many believed? Well, I, I'm sure many, but not many compared to all that lived in the region. Not that many compared to all that lived in this community. I think this passage tells us that even though Jesus developed a stable following, the community as a whole still did not accept him. Now consider this. Jesus says that if Tyre and Sidon had experienced the same thing that happened in these three towns, they would have believed. They would have seen and they would have believed. Or perhaps it's better to say if Jesus had revealed himself even to those places, which are non-Jewish communities, these are pagan cities, right? If they would have seen and heard the teachings of Jesus, they would have repented and believed. Church, it is my understanding that Jesus is telling, telling his followers that he has done more than enough for the people of Galilee to know the truth about who he is. He's done more than enough, yet many still trust in their own understanding instead of trusting in what Christ has revealed about himself and who he is. I want you to think about the list of things we've seen. Now listen, we're in Luke chapter 10. We've been in Luke since the beginning of school, and school is out in three weeks. Now I want you to think about all the things that we've learned that has happened. We're told that Jesus healed many and, and cast out demons in Capernaum. There's the huge catch of fish where Peter and James and John were called. There's the healing of the centurion's servant. There's the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. There's the healing of the woman with the bleeding disorder. And even the feeding of the 5,000 probably happened in the countryside, not too far from this area. Now, these are just a few things that are mentioned in the book of Luke that happened in this region, not to mention the teaching that Jesus gave. And we spent like three weeks in John chapter 6 looking at the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus had performed great miracles, given this great teaching. Evidence was everywhere. Yet some believed and some did not. Some believed and some did not. Now, as we've been moving through this series, there's a, a sermon I preached on, on Luke chapter 8 on the parable of the, the seed and the sower and the soil. Uh, man, I, 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 throughout this teaching, I just see hints, callbacks to that passage uh, of Scripture. And so I want to pull out the most clear section that addresses 
the same idea of, of some who see being the one whose eyes are open. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 says this. And when his disciples asked him what his parables meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, I find myself, as I, as I was teaching through this, I almost took this whole tangent where I wanted to re-preach that sermon that examined this verse, Luke 8, 9, through 9 and 10. I wanted to re-preach the whole thing over again. And then we really would have been here for a long time, right? Instead, if you want to make a note and go back and listen to it later, I preached it on February 26th, so that's on the website and on YouTube. If you want to go back and look at it on your own, you can't, okay? Now, we spent the second half of that message looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in preparing the soil for the seed. In three types of soil, in three types of soil, the plant did not uh, reach maturity. In these cases, they could see and, and they could hear the same thing that everybody else did, yet apart from God revealing it, it never produced any fruit. It never produced any fruit. It failed. The only one that produced fruit was the one that was prepared soil. That Sunday I read from Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 17. Now, as we uh, went through um, Luke 9 on Easter, we, we talked about this same event where, where Peter makes his profession of faith. But Matthew gives us a little more detail. This is Matthew's account of Peter's confession. It says in verse 15, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? That's Jesus asking the disciples. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, how did Peter know that Jesus was the Messiah? Was it through flesh and blood? Was it through his observations? Was it through these things that he'd seen? Did he trust in his own wisdom and understanding? What does it say? It said it was revealed by the Father. God prepared him to receive who Jesus was. And what does Jesus say to his disciples in Luke chapter 10 in our passage today? He says virtually the same thing. So I want to read the whole passage for you again. And I want you to pay attention to the heart and the tone of the passage. I want you to ask yourself as we read it again, what is Jesus rejoicing in? What is Jesus happy about? Let's take a look. Let's, let's look at the passage again, starting in Luke 10, 21. It says, And that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and did not hear what you, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The previous section, right before verse 21, is talking to his disciples about rejoicing that their name is written in heaven. Then uh, the verses after verse 21, so that's 22 and following, are all about what the Son and Father reveal. The ones who know the Father are the ones whom the Son reveals it to. Right? Then Jesus goes on to talk about how the disciples can see and hear. This is revealing language continued. Church, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to hear that Jesus rejoices in that. He rejoices that you've seen. He rejoices that you've heard and that you've taken it in and that you believe. Church, if you have confessed your sins and asked for his grace and mercy, and if you have said that you want to follow him, I want you to know that this is pleasing to the Father. This pleases him. This is his will for you. And Jesus is glad in it. So I want you to try to personalize that. I want you to say to yourself, you don't have to say it out loud, but like, you know, we're good about to say it inside quietly because we're, you know, in the service, right? Jesus rejoices that he has saved me. He rejoices that he saved me. Say it to yourself. It pleases God that I am following him. Now, can I tell you something kind of crazy? I want you to think back to the baptism of Jesus, okay? I want you to remember what the Father said about the Son as the Holy Spirit descended. Listen to Luke chapter 3, Verse 22, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. I want to say, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Guess what? That same word, well pleased, is the same Greek word behind his gracious will. The same thing that he says about his son, that he is well pleased in his son, guess what he says about us believing in him? That he is well pleased. Is that not incredible? The same thing that he says to his son, Jesus Christ, he says to you, he is well pleased that you believe. I love how Jesus calls his followers little children in verse 21. And I love how God's fatherly nature is evident in this passage. It pleases the Father to pour out his love on his children. It pleases the Father to see his children be blessed it pleases the Father to see them receive the best he has to give them. Parents, does it not please you to see your children accept and appreciate 
the sacrifices that you've made for them? Is it not a blessing to you as a parent to see them delight in the love that you have for them? I love getting to see the father's nature in this as he calls them little children and he rejoices in their salvation. I told you, I started, the, I started this message out by saying I, I had a bad week. The enemy loves to take the joy out of the truth of our salvation. He wants us miserable. He wants us stuck. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to repeatedly preach the gospel to ourselves. Just because you believed it once a long time ago and were baptized does not mean you get to forget it. It was true then. It was true yesterday. It's true today. It's going to be true tomorrow. So we have to stop and remember this. Jesus actually loves you. We sing that song. We make it this platitude. We make it this thing that we just kind of, you know, yeah, 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 Jesus loves me. What I want you to see is that the God of the universe rejoices in the fact that you believe. And what can separate us from that love? Paul has a lot to say about this. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 38. And what, is the Paul, what, what does the Apostle Paul say to encourage the Christians at Rome, in Rome? He says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. He's just like in a hand cramp writing these things, right? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, do you believe that? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. So I just want to go up a couple of verses. Uh, still in Romans 8. Look at, look at what he said just before that. Verse 32 and following, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Put your finger there on verse 33, okay? Because we're going to come back to that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This idea of election here, these elect, who are these people? These are the people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are the ones whom God has revealed himself to and they believe. This is the people that Jesus was talking to in Luke chapter 10. 
that he's rejoicing in. But you know what the enemy likes to do? The enemy likes to bring charges against God's elect. The enemy likes to condemn. And here is what I want to tell you. And what It's the same point. It's the same one. Jesus rejoices in your salvation. Who can condemn us? No one. We do not stand condemned in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we face the long list, the long list of trials, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, I'm going to read it again, rulers and powers and things to come, height, depth, Anything else in all creation, what can separate us from Christ? Nothing. Nothing. That is where our hope is. And what the enemy wants to do is rob you of that hope. Make you doubt what Christ has done for you. Make you doubt what has been accomplished. Make you waller in your sin and in your shame. That's a place of weakness. But Paul also says that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that he makes himself great in our weakness. One of the reasons why the, the tricks of the enemy work so well is because he so craftily roots them in a bit of truth. Apart from Christ, are we worthy of God's love? No, we are dead in our sin. Apart from him, we deserve to die and go to hell. But he is God the Father, the creator of all things. And for some reason that is beyond me, he loved his creation. And he sent his son to die for us. That though we were dead in our sin, we may have life in Christ. So that that can be a thing of the past. And forgive, in forgiveness, we can move forward as we follow him. That is what he has called us to. And that is something to rejoice in. And that is where our hope is. And so when we have dark days, hard times... It does not mean these things are not hard or dark. It does mean that they are not ultimate. It does mean that they do not define us. We are defined by our creator, amen? And he rejoices in our salvation. So how do we respond to that kind of love? How do we respond to that kind of rejoicing over us? Jesus says that he give, gives thanks to the Father. We have an opportunity to give thanks to the Father. When we stop and celebrate communion, which we're about to do in just a moment, that is what we do. The early church called communion the Eucharist. And the word Eucharist means thankful. It is an expression of thanksgiving. I want you to imagine that upper room the night before Jesus died 
when he tells his disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood of my new covenant. What is he telling them? He's telling them he is about to give himself up for them because he loved them, because it was the way that they could know the Father. He gave himself up that we might be forgiven and that we might know the Father. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, if we believe that he died and rose from the dead, if we confess our sins and turn from them and follow him, we can be saved. And what is the response to that salvation? It is love, and it is thanksgiving, and it is worship. And so in just a second, the praise team's going to come. Praise team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. And they're going to lead us in a song. And as we sing this song, I want you guys to do two things. I want you to be praying uh, that the Lord would stir in you a heart of thanksgiving. That you would remember how much he loves you and the sacrifice he made for you. And that out of that heart of thanksgiving, you would take communion. Now as we also sing this song, we're going to get our, uh, the elements of communion. So our deacons are in the back. We've got two stations, maybe two stations, definitely one, uh, up high. And then three down here. So as we sing this song, you can dismiss yourself from your pew. Go and get communion. You'll get a, a, a little wafer and a little juice cup. Bring them back to your seat. After we sing this song, we'll take them together. Okay? We'll take them together. So if you guys would pray with me, and then we'll continue in worship. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity we have to worship you. We are thankful, Lord, that you rejoice over us. Father, help us to remember the price you paid for us to be saved. That you gave your son. That you experienced the suffering that we deserved. And that you conquered the grave and rose again. Father, help us not to trust in our own strength, but to be weak before you and rest, rest, and the work that you've done, and the salvation that you have accomplished. Father, help us to take communion today in a spirit of thanksgiving. It's in your name we pray. Amen.